Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. John 3 and Titus 3 are going to be our launching points today. And we're going to be all over the New Testament today. Born again, saved, converted. These terms to the popular modern unbelieving mind sort of conjure up at best kind of a primitive backwoods sort of revivalist view of Christianity. And at at worst, it probably causes people to be offended at the notion that Christians who take the Bible seriously actually believe that people must be born again. And even for some weak, culturally self-professing, biblically illiterate Christians, it's a source of embarrassment, something we brush over. And we insist that our churches and preachers preach on things more relevant, like helping us spend our money more wisely, or how to have more self-esteem, or how to balance our checkbooks more effectively. But friends, the Bible is utterly clear. The message of the scriptures from the beginning to the end is primarily how God saves sinners through Jesus Christ. Today we're going to talk about, it's going to be an unusual sermon for us because generally our practice is to work our way through books of the Bible. We have spent the last six months or so working our way through Colossians. I think it would be unwise for us in the middle of summer to start a new series. And so these next couple weeks, we're going to do some individual messages. And probably in the fall, I'm going to start a new book. I'm leaning towards 1 Corinthians, and we'll work our way through 1 Corinthians. I think it'll probably take us about six or seven months to do that. There's lots of good stuff in there, sexual immorality, divorce, speaking in tongues. Awesome. All stuff I want to handle. Uh, But today, I'm going to do... A little bit of an unusual practice, I'm going to preach a topical message on the doctrine of regeneration, conversion, born again. Here's the question we want to answer. What does it mean to be converted, to be born again, to be saved? Now, a lot of times in our culture, when you say to Christians, doctrine, it's become kind of a bad word. And that's, 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 that's a tragedy. Doctrine is a good word. Doctrine or theology should lead us into doxology, which is worship. And so theology, a right understanding of who God is, leads us into worship of God because we know who he is and that causes us to respond. It it stirs our affections for Jesus when we understand who he is more correctly by the word of God. And then our worship then, when we are praising God and responding to him with joy and affection, it causes us to be more evangelistic because it becomes, as as Corinthians says, an aroma of Christ. And so today we're going to focus on this question, how does a person become a Christian? To do that, we're going to use John 3 and Titus 3 as a launching point, and then I want to cover three points. I've got three points. We're going to have some points up on the screen, three overarching uh, points that we're going to handle today, and those three points are, uh, first, what is our situation before we we become Christians? Two, what does the Bible say we must do 
And then three, why is this so important that we understand this biblically? So the first point we're going to cover is our situation before we become Christians. Secondly, what the Bible says we must do. And then thirdly, why understanding conversion is so important. If you don't want to take notes, if you just want to absorb it all, all of the notes that I'm going through today will be on the website uh, by tomorrow afternoon or at worst early this week. So you can look forward to that and just sit back and listen. All right, let's go. John chapter 3, verse 1. John chapter 3, and then we're going to go quickly to Titus chapter 3. This is one of the more well-known discourses in the scripture where Jesus is talking to the Jewish religious teacher Nicodemus. And this is what it says in John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered in verse 5, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Let me stop there and just sort of clarify for you what that phrase born of water means. Some commentators have wrongly speculated that that means that we have to be physically born, as, as when a, a mother is about to have her child, we say her water breaks, that maybe what Jesus is saying there is that you have to be born of water, because we know that baptism, water baptism, although very important, is not a requirement for salvation, but that's not what Jesus means there. He doesn't mean water baptism, and he doesn't mean physical birth. He is alluding to Ezekiel chapter 36 in the Old Testament, the promise of the new covenant of God speaking to the people of Israel where he is saying that I will sprinkle you, I will make you clean with water as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And so to Nicodemus, this first century Jew, when Jesus says that you must be born of water, he would have instinctively understood that Jesus is saying, referring to that covenantal promise of God in Ezekiel 36, where he says, I will make you clean by my water, in other words, the Holy Spirit. So what Jesus is saying there is that you must be born of the Spirit. You cannot enter the kingdom of God. Verse 6. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So before we go to Titus chapter 3, just a couple points. Number one, Jesus clearly says, you must be born again. Secondly, we can certainly infer from that that salvation is a sovereign act of God. Jesus says that this salvation comes from the Spirit of God, and we'll talk about this later. The Spirit is what regenerates us and makes us alive, and this Spirit is bound by no one. This Spirit, the Spirit of God, blows like the wind where it wishes. Go to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, a small New Testament book after First and Second Timothy, written by the Apostle Paul. Titus chapter 3, verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, 
slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are excellent and profitable for people. Before we pray and launch into the message, just a couple points from this. Titus here, the words of Paul, reaffirm to us that salvation is a work of God. He saves us, not because of things that we have done. So there's no getting good enough to be in a place where you are prepared enough to be able to be saved because it's not based on your getting good enough. It is based on God's rich mercy, which he pours out through Jesus. Now, with that as a backdrop, we're going to answer these three questions. What is our state before we become Christians? What does the Bible say we must do? And thirdly, why is this so important? Well, this is a weighty topic, and I need the help of God and his Holy Spirit. And I need your prayers. So let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. As we open it today, God, I pray that it would examine us and that we would not arrogantly examine it and run it through the filter of our self-centered, self-idolizing American mindset. I pray, God, that we would come today with great humility. I pray that those who are already Christians in here would not check out because they might instinctively think, oh, this is something that I have already done. This is just going to be a boring doctrinal message. God, nothing could be further from the truth. Would you cause those people who have already been born again in this room, would you cause them to be stirred in their affection for Jesus? Would you lead them to more worship, which would lead them to more effective witness for the name of Christ? God, if there's somebody in this room, and I am certain with a crowd this size that there are, there's somebody in this room who does not yet believe in Jesus, would you cause them to be born again by the living and abiding word of God? And would you make Jesus so altogether lovely and beautiful? Would you make him, as the old theologians said, irresistible? So that that sinner that is in this room today would turn from their sin. Trust in Jesus. And ultimately, God, I confess that I am weak. I am self-idolatrous. And I need your help. So would you help me now communicate these enormously important words? In Jesus' name, amen. 
Point number one, our situation before we become Christians. The Bible is clear about this. We are spiritually dead, all of us. We are born in sin, separated from God. Before we become Christians, if we do become Christians, we are spiritually dead because of our sins. This is what the Bible says in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. The Apostle Paul, speaking to the Roman church, he says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all sinned. And what Paul has in view there, if you read the rest of the chapter, is not just physical death. But what he has in view there is spiritual death as well. So in the garden, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, the pathway, the entrance for sin came in through their rebellion. And what spread throughout all humanity is sin and death. The consequence of our rebellion, which we have all participated in by our nature as children of Adam and by our choice as individuals, is our rebellion against God, which brings certain physical and spiritual death. So although we may be at this point in our lives physically alive and emotionally alive, before a person comes to Christ, they are spiritually dead. Ephesians 2 picks up on this theme as well. Verse 1 in Ephesians 2 says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, we all, not just people that um, do evil things that from our perspective as a, as a society, but all, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so we are spiritually dead. We're separated from God because of our sins. Secondly, this is important, we are completely, because of this sin, we are completely unable to save ourselves. Dead people don't just get up from the grave. Dead people don't decide to breathe again. This sin has done something to us. It's killed our ability to save ourselves. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says that the natural person, in other words, the person before they come to Christ, The person dead in their sin does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So people don't just drum their way into loving God. We are unable to save ourselves. And probably even a more decisive statement of this is in Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8, where Paul says, For the mind that is set on the flesh, in other words, and you can get this context from the whole chapter there, the unconverted mind, the unbelieving mind, the mind before it becomes a Christian. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So let's summarize here quickly that Our situation before we become Christians is is that we have all rebelled against God by nature and by choice, and the whole world stands under. We are all accountable to God. Romans chapter 3. If you want some good bedtime reading to cheer you up, read it. (laughs) The whole world is held accountable before God. Every person, whether they are born in the Bible Belt or whether they are born on some remote island, the whole world, every person is, before they become a Christian, are dead in their sins, and as a consequence of their spiritual death, they are completely unable to save themselves. Now, this gets confusing in our culture, right? Because we are obsessed with morality. And so we look at a person and we say, well, that guy, he's not a Christian, but he's a pretty good dude. I mean, he doesn't do anything. He pays his taxes. He's a very law-abiding citizen. In fact, he's a good guy. 
But apart from Christ, listen, this is very important, especially for a culture that we grew up in that sometimes mixes morality with born-again Christianity, that morality or good works from a dead sinner apart from Christ, even that is rebellion and sin because at the very bottom of us trusting in our morality apart from the grace of God in its essence is treason against the sovereign creator of the universe because ultimately what that person is doing and trusting in their moral goodness is they are saying that I am good enough in my goodness which is ultimately stealing glory from the creator of the universe. So this person that rejects Christianity but walks in his morality and trusts in his morality and his law-abiding ways is actually a treasonous glory thief because they are trusting. They're, they're, they're doing something maybe even worse than blatant sin because they're trusting in their own sufficiency. They are glory thieves against the one to whom all glory is due, which is God. So even in our seeming morality and self-righteousness, when it's not connected to the cross, is ultimately treason and glory thievery. A couple implications of this, and they're important, and they're humbling. One is that there is no such thing as spiritual neutrality. You are either spiritually dead or you are spiritually alive. Some of you may be in the process of being drawn by the Spirit of God, as Jesus says in John chapter 6. You may be in the process of being made alive by God's Spirit, but there is no neutrality. You're either spiritually dead or you're spiritually alive. This is the clear witness and statement of Scripture. The other a clear implication of this is, and this is important, especially here in the Bible Belt, where we have a church on every street corner, and we just sort of assume because a guy's a decent dude and he gets a bulletin from somewhere that he's a Christian. The reality is, is that there's nowhere, friends, do you know this? There's nowhere you can be from that ensures you're a Christian. No one is born a Christian. I mean, we seem to do it to assume, you know, if you're from the Northeast, well, you're probably Roman Catholic, and if you're from the Midwest, well, maybe you're Lutheran and you pronounce your O's in a funny way, and if you're from California, well, you're, who knows what you are if you're from California. But if you're from, if you're from the Bible Belt, certainly, yeah, I mean, you're, you're, you're certainly a Christian. And if you're a good Christian, you're, you're a Southern Baptist, right? Because that's where, that's where it all starts, here in the South, in the Bible Belt. In fact, we're the buckle of the Bible Belt. But you know the clear witness of Scripture, friends, is that there's, there's nowhere you can brief, be from. There's no family or church that you can grow up in that ensures that you're a Christian. No one is born a Christian, Incidentally, this has clear implications for us as parents. You know that our children, this is hard for us to hear, but it is the biblical truth and it is good for you to hear. Our children are not born Christians. We are obsessed because we're weak and insecure. We are obsessed in this parenting culture in America with we're addicted to self-esteem. And so we want to tell our children how good they are and how they can do anything they want. And listen, I am not against encouragement and affirmation. I think that's a valid part of the development of the human soul. But you must make central in your parenting the notion that 
every person is fallen and stands accountable to God and is lost in their sin. And we, if you tell Johnny and Susie all day long that they can do anything, then when they hear, when they grow up and they become a teenager and they wander into a church and they hear a biblically correct sermon about how they were lost in their sin and they can't do it, it will be incongruent with the thing that they've heard all their life and they will walk out of that church lost in their morality and in their self-righteousness. And so I'm... Like I said a couple weeks ago, I don't think we need to read Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God to our kids as bedtime stories, although that would be awesome. (laughs) But the point is, is that when we're filling little Johnny and Susie with, you can do it, you can do it, the message of the scripture is you can't do it. Only God can. So this has implications for our parenting as well. So point number one, our situation before we become Christians is that we are all spiritually dead because of our sin. We are completely unable to save ourselves and even in our morality, if we're trusting in that, we are treasonous, glory thieves. Which then brings us to point number two, which is what the Bible says we must do. So against the backdrop of human fallenness and human folly and human rebellion, And the consequences of human rebellion, which is death and separation from God and complete inability to save ourselves, Jesus comes onto the scene and preaches this message at the beginning of all the Gospels. Mark chapter 1, Matthew chapter 4, as he begins his public ministry, he says, repent and believe in the Gospel. Repent and believe in the Gospel. And these are the two things, the message of Jesus and the message of Paul, which is the gospel throughout the New Testament, two things that the Bible says we must do, repent and believe in Jesus. Repent, which is to turn from your sins and then to believe, to trust in Jesus. In fact, the apostle Paul, towards the end of his ministry in Acts chapter 20, this is how he summarizes his whole message as he's speaking to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verse 18. And he says, and when they came to him, he said to them, this is Paul speaking towards the end of his ministry to the Ephesian elders, summarizing his whole life and ministry and messages. message. This is what he says. You yourselves know how I lived among you from the whole time, from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility and with all tears and with trials that happened to me throughout the plots of the Jews. Verse 20, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of, and here's how he summarizes his message, preaching and testifying of this, of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so against the backdrop of human fallenness and the consequences of our fallenness, which is death and separation and total inability to save ourselves, Jesus and his apostles come onto the scene in the New Testament and they tell us, in fact, the Bible and Acts says that he commands all men everywhere to repent and believe. These two things are what the Bible says every person must do to be converted, repent and believe. So let's Let's look at those two things quickly. Repentance, what is it? It is more than just sorrow. It's more than just being upset because we've been found out or caught in our sin or because things have gone poorly for us as a result of our actions. Repentance is something deeper than that. Repentance is more than just sorrow or anguish. Repentance is to turn. It is, here's a definition from a theologian that I respect. He says, it is a heartfelt sorrow for sin a renouncing of it, 
and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. Now, this does not mean that once we repent and become Christians that we are sinless. More on that later. But repentance is a turning from what we cherish, which is sin and self-reliance, and a turning to Christ in faith. Now, repentance and faith, or repentance and belief, are two edges of the same sword. One of the great theologians of the church, John Calvin, said that these two things, repentance and faith, should not be divided or separated, but they should be distinguished. But they are really two edges of the same sword. We turn from our cherished self-reliance and sin, and we turn to Christ in faith and belief. So we repent, we turn, and we trust in Jesus. Those are the two things that the Bible says you must do to become a Christian. Not praying a certain prayer, not deciding to show up to church more regularly, not tithing, not good works, not doing any specific work, but repenting, turning from sin, and trusting in Jesus. Which We've talked about repentance, now let's talk about faith. What is it? Because it's more than just mere knowledge. Saving faith or belief is more than just Mere knowledge. The Bible says in James that even the demons believe and tremble, but the demons aren't saved. They know the knowledge of what Jesus did on the cross. But just knowing that knowledge, just having these facts in your head does not save you. And it's more than just knowledge and agreement. It's not just agreeing with it that, yes, there was a real man named Jesus, and he took the sin of the world on his shoulders and died as a sacrifice for our sins and rose again in victory three days later. It's more than just agreeing with that. Saving faith, believing faith in the Bible is always presented as something more than just cognitive agreement. It is personal trust. It is placing your trust, the weight of your life on this piece of knowledge. Think of it this way. Saving faith Believing in Jesus for salvation is not just to agree with a set of facts, but it is to treasure. It is to treasure this piece of information above any other information and to set the weight of your life, to give the weight of your hope and your future to this thing. I think it's illustrated beautifully by Jesus in a parable in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 44. He says that the kingdom of God or the gospel, believing in Jesus is what he's talking about here in this context. It's like a man who finds a, a, a treasure hidden in a field and he places his personal trust in it to such a degree that he goes and he sells all that he has to buy this field. He is not just agreeing that there is a real treasure in that field. He's not just acknowledging a set of facts. He is placing his hope, his aspirations, his future, his trust, the weight of his life in this piece of knowledge, this hidden treasure, this pearl of great price. And that's what it is to believe in Jesus, that you look to the one who died for you and you treasure. There can be doubt. There can be complication. There can be, there can be even maybe a very a very elementary understanding of it, but believing in Jesus for salvation is a treasure. God, I can't do it. Only you can. I trust in you alone. And what are we trusting in when we trust in Jesus? We're trusting in a God-man, fully God, fully man, who came and lived a perfect life here on this earth, was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin, accrued righteousness. He stored up righteousness for us, lived a perfect life. Because of his perfection, he became a satisfactory substitute for our rebellion and sin. And he willingly laid his life down on the cross 
died for us. The Bible says in Isaiah and in 1 Peter that he took our sins. He took our sins in his death on the cross and he satisfied the wrath of God. So when we say we are saved, we are saved from, we're not saved from ourselves or from the devil. We're saved from God, by God, for God. And so Jesus absorbs the righteous justice of a father on the cross. And then he, three days later, defeats that death and sin by coming back, resurrecting from the grave. And then to all that would repent and believe, trust, treasure him, he gives his righteousness. He takes their Sin, this is what Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, calls the great exchange. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So on the cross, there is a dual exchange here. Our sin for those, only for those, not just for everybody, but for those that repent and trust in Jesus. He takes their sin. He satisfies it. He absorbs the punishment that should have been ours on the cross. And he extinguishes it. So that's why Paul can say in Romans 8 that there is therefore no condemnation for those who believe in Christ Jesus because Christ has satisfied God's wrath against our rebellion. So he takes our sin and then he gives us his righteousness. He gives us his character so that we can walk in ever-increasing glory to be like him in our pursuit of Christ after we become Christians. And so that's what it means. That's what we believe. We turn from our sin and we trust in Jesus. Now, you, if you've been listening, and if you're technical, you may be thinking, ah, yeah, yeah, I'm tracking with you, Brad, but there's, there's a, a seeming paradox here. You said just a second ago that we were dead in our sins. We were completely unable to save ourselves. And then you said the Bible says we must do this. We must repent and believe and treasure in Jesus. How can we do that? That is an impossibility. How can a dead man save himself? You're right, friends. That brings us to point number two under this greater point about what the Bible says we must do. If we are to be saved, listen to this. God must give us these gifts, repentance and faith. The Bible always speaks of repentance and faith, not as human works that we bring to the table, but rather as gifts that only God can supply. Let me read you a series of scriptures that hammer this point home. Jesus says in John chapter 6 and verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Paul writes, or this is, I'm sorry, Peter uh, summarizing his experience in evangelizing Cornelius' household at the end of Acts chapter 10, goes to the Jerusalem church and he reports to them about how the Gentiles received this gift of salvation. And then all of those early disciples said in Acts chapter 11 and 18, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Paul writes again in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, For God, who said, let let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So God gives the knowledge. It is a gift from God. Repentance and faith is a gift to a dead heart. Philippians 2, I'm sorry, Philippians 1, verse 29, Paul from a Roman prison cell writing to the Philippians who are undergoing persecution. He says, for it has been granted to you That for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And so he said, the very fact that you're believing in Jesus, and by the way, right now being being, uh, 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 
considered by Christ so worthy that you're going to suffer for my name, the very fact that you believe in him was first granted to you by Jesus. 2 Timothy chapter 2, 24 and 25 says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. So this is something, repentance is something that God grants as a gift. And then maybe the clearest statement in all the Bible of the gift of faith, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Friends, listen to me and listen well. When God decides to break down the resistance of dead, stubborn, rebellious sinners and save them. He gives what he commands. He supplies the very thing that he calls for, which is new life that immediately responds in repentance and faith and treasuring of Jesus. This is why the gospel is such utterly, staggeringly, enormously good news. Because the gospel is not God does 99% of it and then you got to muster it up. You got to muster it up, dead sinner, with your 1%. No, the good news of the gospel, as Augustine, the early church father in the 300 said, he said that God, give what you command and command what you will. So the gospel is so powerful. Listen to me, friends. The gospel is so powerful that it creates the very thing it commands, which is life, life, faith, repentance. It's not like we were incapacitated and wounded and we kind of we limped our way up to the table of grace. But the gospel is so powerful. This is why Paul writes in Romans 1.16 that I am not ashamed of the gospel because it, it is the power of God for salvation. When the gospel hits, it creates the very thing that it calls for. It supplies the thing it demands, which is life, faith, repentance. That is good news. Better, better. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, said, when God bids us to convert and turn, this is to show us what we ought to do, not what we can do. So friends, I'm not storming the gates of your will, asking you to muster up religious conviction and praying that the sovereign God of the universe will make Jesus altogether lovely to you. And give you the very thing that he commands of you. Repentance. Faith. Now, lest we veer off into an unbiblical view of God's sovereignty and salvation, we also must remember this third thing. That God uses means to give these gifts. God uses means to give these gifts. So lest any of us think that all salvation is just something that God's going to do, I'm just going to sit back and say, say la vie, I got Jesus. Who cares about the next guy? Right after one of the clearest statements on God's sovereignty and salvation, which I believe is found in Romans chapter 9. This is what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 10. He says that God uses the means, the obedience of his people, 
preaching of the gospel to give these gifts. This is what he says, Romans 10, verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. So that means, listen to me well, all of you people that treasure the sovereignty of God. That means that the eternal destiny of people hangs in the balance as to whether or not we as Christians are obedient to the preaching of the gospel. That means that there are people in Columbus, Georgia, who will not be saved because we do not preach the gospel, or who will be saved because we, as a means of God's grace, do preach the gospel. That's why preaching the gospel is so important. It's the power of God to salvation and the obedience and the prayers and the faithfulness and the willing response of his people is the means that God uses to give the gifts of repentance and faith. So let's just summarize here quickly, biblically, how a person becomes a Christian. The gospel, which is the power of God to salvation, is preached or it's spoken or it's displayed through a life or a person, but this knowledge of what Jesus did on the cross as the sole substitute for human rebellion and sin that satisfies the wrath of God, then rising again in victory over that sin and calls all men everywhere to repent and believe, that piece of knowledge, the gospel, is communicated somehow through a sermon or through a witness or through a conversation or through a friendship, but that piece of news is communicated. That's the gospel. And that powerful, life-giving gospel that supplies what it demands hits the dead human heart. And it brings it, it makes it alive. It causes it to be born again. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, that you are born again, not through the perishable seed, but the imperishable seed, the living and abiding word of God. The word hits you. The gospel knowledge hits the dead, rebellious, sinning heart, and it makes you alive. That's why Ephesians 2 said that we were lost in our sins, but then in verse 5, Ephesians 2 said, but God, who is rich in his mercy, made you alive. So the gospel hits us, and it regenerates us, is the theological term. It causes us to be born again, not by the will of man, but by the will of a father, as John says in John chapter 1 and verse 12, 13 and 14. So the gospel hits us. It's powerful enough. It brings new life, and then the first willing response of that new life is faith and repentance. Repentance and faith, turning away from several lives, turning to Christ in sin. And that's how a person becomes a Christian. Now those two things are just instantaneous. They're simultaneous, in fact. It's like fire and heat. New birth, the gospel comes. It's like fire. Where there's fire, there's heat, which is like faith. Fire and heat, those two things always come together. New birth, faith. New birth, faith. Fire and heat. New birth, faith. New birth, faith. New birth, faith. Born again, faith. Born again, faith. Boom. Boom. They're instantaneous together. Where there's fire, there's heat. Where there's fire, there's heat. Where there's a born again soul, there's faith and repentance. Where there's fire, there is heat. Where there is regeneration, new birth, there's faith and repentance. But we would never say, friends, that the heat causes the fire. Don't think that, oh, it's all up to me. The good news of the gospel, that God supplies the life that he commands. So, 
Now, a couple points that I think we should clarify before we move on to our final point. What about altar calls and raising of hands and the sinner's prayer and making a public decision for Christ? Well, I want to be very gracious and gentle here because I realize that's been an important part of many of the people in this room's experience. But I need you to know biblically, friends, that just because you pray a prayer or repeat after a preacher or raise your hand or walk the aisle is not necessarily hard and fast evidence of anything. In fact, that kind of came out of the revivalist culture of American fundamentalism in the 1800s, specifically a man named Charles Finney, who was very manipulative, I believe, in his preaching techniques, and it's been carried over. Now, having said that, I think sometimes it's important for us because we're born again in a moment. Like, there is a moment of salvation. There's a moment when you pass from death to life. There is a moment, and that moment is evidenced by faith and repentance. Like, I have four children, and there's a moment when they when they were born, there's a 6.53 in the morning, August 10th, 1998, Joseph Evangelista was born. There's a moment. But in American church culture, and I think it's fueled oftentimes by the insecurity and ego of preachers, where we want to report a statistic, and we want to validate, we need feedback. And so we move to the human will, and we ask people to raise hands and respond and sometimes that can be valid. I'm not, I'm not saying that if you did that, and that's, you're a Christian now, that was not valid. But what I'm saying is, is that oftentimes that can be very dangerous because in our culture of weak discipleship in the American church, it causes people oftentimes to look back as evidence of their salvation that they simply walked an aisle or raised their hand or repeated a prayer after somebody. Friends, the Bible states clearly that the evidence of our salvation is an ongoing work of sanctification in the life of a believer. That's why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5, he says, test yourself, lest you be in the faith. And how you test yourself is you look at the witness of your life. That's not to say that we don't sin or have times in our life where we re- regress or have difficulties or trials. But to point back simply to a public confession or a repeated prayer or a raised hand can at times, in fact, many times, give people a false sense of security in their salvation. And so if you prayed one of those prayers, man, praise God. But I want you to know, don't lean on that one-time moment as evidence of your salvation. Martin Luther, the great reformer I've mentioned to me, he's a hero of mine in the faith. He, in his 95 thesis, when he started this wildfire called the Protestant Reformation, he wrote 95 things, nailed them to the chapel door at Wittenberg in Germany, against the Pope, and the first thing that he says in his first thesis was that when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed that the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. So it's not just a one-time confession, it's an ongoing life. And then his third thesis in that statement of 95, he said, but when we say we repent, it's worthless unless it produces a life, a lifelong life of growing in God. And so altar calls are not something that we typically do here because I think mostly it can produce a false sense of security. Now, this is important. So that's one little point I want to clarify. Secondly, to be a Christian does not mean that we don't still struggle with sin. We all know that. Here's a quote to help you with that from 
an 1800s British commentator. His name is William Arnott. And this is what he said. This is a beautiful quote. You may want to write this down or find it on the website. You may not have time to write it down now. Find it on the website tomorrow. Copy this down and cherish this quote. This is such a good quote. He says, the difference between an unconverted and converted man is not that the ones, in other words, a person who has received Christ and not, the difference between an unconverted and converted man is not that one has sins, meaning the unconverted guy, and the other has none, but that the one, meaning the unconverted man, takes part with his cherished sins against a dreaded God, while the other takes part with a reconciled God against his own sins. Isn't that beautiful? So the difference between a converted man and an unconverted man is not that one of them has sins and the other one doesn't. It's the posture of their fight. One is grabbing hold of his sins like that little freaky creature on the Lord of the Rings when he, you know, my precious. He's grabbing a hold of his sin, fighting against a dreaded God when the humble, worshiping, repentant sinner is holding fast to a loving God in a fight against his sin. Oh, that's good. That's good. Okay, we end with this. Point number three, why is understanding conversion so important? First, for us as a church, it means that we have expectations of one another, friends. If we are saying that we are a member of this church, and we don't just let anybody be a member of the church. It's not to be exclusive, it's to be loving. In order to be a member of a Bible-believing New Testament church, you must be converted. You must be born again. It doesn't mean that if you're not or if you're on some spiritual journey where you're, Christ is drawing you to himself and you're trying to investigate Christianity, it doesn't mean in any way that you're not welcome here or you cannot participate with us in our activities in the life of our church. But in order to be a member of the household of God, it means that we are saying that we are converted. Now, are there people that can give evidences of that and not truly be converted? Surely, but that's God's work to divide that up at the end, not us. But when we say that we're a member, when we're a Christian, we're part of a church that carries with it a certain set of expectations. It distinguishes us from the world. I mean, Jesus calls us salt in his Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew chapter five, and you, you can probably repeat this with me. If the salt loses its saltiness, saltiness, it is good for nothing. And likewise, if the church loses its knowledge of what God has done in them in conversion, it's good for nothing. The message of the cross is foolishness to the world. It's offensive to the world. And we as a church need to be very, very clear on this. And, and also as a church, you need to know this, friends. This means that the most fundamentally true thing about you, if you're converted, if you're born again, if you're saved, is that you are a Christian. That means that you are more fundamentally, fundamentally and eternally connected to a person who is a believer in Jesus than you are to the people in your own family who are not yet converted. So this, this sociodemographic regional pride or this ethnic pride, I mean, when I was a little kid, and, you know, I got a great-grandfather and great-grandmother who were from Italy, and I went through this strange fascination, I'm still kind of gunked up in it, of my Italian heritage. <laughs> Yeah, I have some Italian blood coursing through my veins. It was evidenced by the fact that I could grow a mustache in the fifth grade. I'm, I'm half Italian. Do you realize that I am, we're more fundamentally Christian than we are any ethnic group. We're more fundamentally saved and redeemed and part of the family of God than we are anything else. Secondly, it has 
implications for us as individuals because it leads us to worship and assurance. If you are a Christian, listen to me now. If you are a Christian and hearing these truths does not stir you, if it doesn't cause you to well in affection for Jesus, then you may need to check your soul. Friends, the implications of this truth are that now our life is not our own. Reynolds quoted it off the top of his head, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20 at the beginning of the service. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Therefore, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are bought with a price, the precious blood of God. So therefore glorify God in your body. If you are a Christian, this should cause you to swell in worship and joy and adoration and love for your Savior. And it should reorient everything about you, your finances, your sexuality, your conversations, your vocation, everything. If you are born again, if you are saved, if you are converted, if you believe and trust and treasure Jesus, it's not just a facet of your life. It is your life. And remembering these things and hearing about these things again and again should stir your affection for Jesus, which causes you to be more humble and more gracious and more thankful and more in love with Jesus, which then causes you to be a better witness for what has happened in your life, which then God uses as means to draw other people to him. John Newton said another great Puritan that I love. Said I, this doesn't mean that we're sinless, friends. What John Newton says is I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I wish to be. I'm not what I hope to be. Yet I can truly say I'm not what I once was. By the grace of God, I am what I am. It's good for us as individuals to be reminded of this. And then thirdly, for those of you that are not yet converted, you're not yet born again, you're not yet saved, and maybe it has become evident to you today that you're not. Friends, listen to me well. What hangs in the balance is eternity. The Bible's very clear about this. There's only two eternal destinations for every soul. The Bible calls hell, which is a place that Jesus says that the worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. There's eternal torment and separation from God forever, or heaven, which is life forever. Friends, I'm not trying to scare you or manipulate you into making a decision. I'm just telling you that this is enormously important because what hangs in the balance is not a better life now or some principles for being a better husband or a couple steps on how to control your anger. But what hangs in the balance about what I've just spoken today is the eternal destiny of every human being. How do you become a Christian? Are you hearing me? Jesus says to him who has ears to hear. Are you wondering, am I a Christian? Is God giving me these gifts of repentance and faith? Could this happen to me? I realize I'm lost. How can I be saved? Ah, friend, the very fact that you're even thinking that and wondering that and asking that question in your mind, I believe is evidence that God is giving you the gospel 
that brings life. With that life, he supplies what he commands. So now it is your responsibility. In fact, it's your command. Repent. Turn from your cherished sin. Trust in Jesus. To see the God-man, creator of the universe himself, being hung on a cross for you, absorbing the wrath of the Father for you, then rising again in victory over your sin and the sin of all those that would repent and believe, calling you now to come, treasure him, give all that you have, that hidden treasure. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Is anyone thirsty? Come. Come now to Jesus. Do you hear these words? If you hear these words, I believe that is evidence that God is hitting your heart with the gospel. Turn from self-reliance and turn to faith in Jesus. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this time. God, I'm not going to try and add to this message now with a summary within my prayer. So Lord, would you be gracious? Would you do two things? For those that are Christians in this room, would you stir our affections for Jesus? Lord, in my life, would you stir my affection for what you have done for me, the cross and the resurrection of Christ? God, would today, would I fall deeper in love with Jesus? And would you do that for my friends as well that are already believers in Jesus? Would you rouse our tired, self-centered hearts towards love and adoration for you? And Lord, for my friends that are in this room who it has become evident to them by the gracious gift of your Holy Spirit that they need to be saved, would you help them now simply turn Would you help them now engage the faculties of their mind and make the decision to turn from their sin, turn from self-reliance and morality and trust solely in what Jesus did on the cross? Would you do that now, Lord, as we sing? Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.